You can turn once again in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 1. Uh, It's been a lot of messages in this chapter, but this is the last one, James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 26 and 27 tonight. James 1, 26 to 27. I was telling the young adults last night at our group that I think this might be, um, at least in my heart, one of, if not the most important message I feel like I've preached at Grace Fellowship so far. And perhaps that was overselling it, but needless to say, I think this is an important message. Um, It's all important from God's Word, but this is a word for us to hear, uh, a word from the Lord that I trust and pray will go right to our very hearts. So let's read from James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. This is God's holy word. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray and ask God's help. Heavenly Father, your word is like fire, Your word is like a hammer, and we ask that you would use it to mold and shape our hearts, especially that we would each be fashioned more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. We want to, we need to be more like Jesus. So grant us the help of your Holy Spirit to this end, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Our text this evening is providing us a very stark contrast. And it's the contrast between worthless religion and a worthwhile, valuable religion. And we know that we live in a culture that in many ways despises and rejects Christianity as irrelevant, outdated, and as really useless, sometimes even antithetical, to any good. But the question that arises is, is this Christianity that's being rejected is that authentic Christianity? Right? Perhaps you've tried to circumvent paying high fees for cell phone accessories and you ordered a knockoff charger cable only to find it really doesn't work. And so you toss it to the side. It's tossed aside as inauthentic. And perhaps the Christianity that's being rejected is just an inauthentic version. And we want to present to the world an authentic Christian witness, truly showing What is the way of Jesus in dark and dreary times? We were looking the last time we were together at what it means to be doers of the word and not hearers only. To have that um, desire to have an endeavoring obedience. And after the service, a perceptive church member asked me, well, how might I this week practically do the word, right? That's what the preacher loves to hear. Some comes up, how do I put this into practice, right? It's a great joy. And I said, well, I guess you should just wait for next time because James is going to give here three eminently practical aspects of what it means to be a doer of the word. 
three themes that will really come to the fore in the rest of the letter of James. Specific directions. Three examples of what it looks like to be a doer of the word. The three things being to be people of, who bridle their tongues, people who visit the afflicted, and people who walk in purity. And so my contention this evening is that if we want to practice a religion that represents a true and authentic picture of the way of Jesus in this world, then we need to give our hearts and our minds to this instruction from James. Namely, that we'd be a people of bridled tongues, of merciful hands, and of holy hearts. Those are the three things we're going to be looking at tonight. What it means to be people of bridled tongues, merciful hands, and holy hearts. Three essential components of an authentic Christian witness in this world. So first, consider with me bridled tongues. Look again down at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now we know that there are few things that more quickly expose the state of a person's heart than the words they say, right? The words on the outside reveal what's going on in the inside. Remember Jesus himself said that it's out of the abundance, the overflow of the heart, that the mouth speaks words. And what's coming out of the hearts in this verse, James calls unbridled speech. And James talks about speech at many different points in this letter. And so unbridled speech we know and can fill this out as speech that is hateful, that is malicious, that is slanderous, that is backbiting, that is cursing and railing against God's image bearers, which things, James says, ought not be so. And sadly, such examples of corrupt speech are found widely in society, but even in the Christian church and our community. Uh, John Calvin noted on this, and I paraphrase, saying that um, quite quickly in the church, many have learned to put away the more outward objectionable sins, perhaps adultery, theft, drunkenness, but yet many are still revealed and exposed by this disease of corrupt speech. It's more difficult in some ways to put away. And sadly, the evangelical church has become known in many ways for outraged, contemptuous, provocative, inflammatory speech. And this is in many ways the water we swim in. You remember we heard about anger and outrage culture a few weeks ago. And I perhaps have shared this before, but I don't usually listen to talk radio, but in the summer I didn't have what I usually listened to, and I flipped it on, and uh, it was a talk radio political commentator who claims the name of Christ. He claims to be a Christian, and the way he, he was speaking of people he disagreed with and the actions they were doing, and he was repeatedly calling them vermin. Over and over, he referred to these image bearers of God as vermin. That, that's to compare them to rats. And that is the type of thing that is just so unfitting for a Christian witness in this world. That's the talk that leads to genocide, to that dehumanizing of others, that leads people able to commit great atrocities. Unbridled speech that mars the Christian witness. But the call for us as Christians is to bridle our tongues, like a bridle on a horse used to control this powerful animal. Our tongues have power, the power, God's word says, of life and death. And so to bridle them, to have self-control, to control those worst impulses in our hearts, 
that our words might communicate grace, be used for upbuilding, be seasoned with salt, that they might edify and build up those who hear. And James is directing this warning here against even religious people. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, and the word religious here is referring to the person who participates in religious worship services. Like us sitting here, it's someone who takes part in the liturgical activity of the local body. They find themselves religious because they are doing religious things, singing, listening to sermons, what have you. This person thinks himself religious. And James notes that this person who fancies himself a religious person is exposed because though within the church he speak words of praise to God, if outside the church his words are marked by runaway, hateful, malicious speech, he says that this person's religion, all their religious activity is useless. It's worthless. That is to say it is vain. Their lifestyle and words outside the church, it shows their activity within is worthless, not fitting to do any good in this world. And James says that this person is actually deceiving their own heart. They're deceiving their own heart. And really, this person you could call a religious hypocrite. Now, when we think of this sort of hypocrisy, we can think of it in two types, two types of hypocrites. The first type of hypocrite is the one who is truly deceived as to the true state of their heart before God. And as evidenced by this ungodly speech, that is evidence that their heart has never really been transformed by the grace and love of the Lord Jesus. And they need to repent and call on the Lord for salvation and forgiveness. But there's also a second type of hypocrisy which comes upon even the true genuine believer. And it's the sort of hypocrisy where your walk doesn't match your talk. Where You are living a life that's inconsistent with your Christian confession and falling into various sins. And the harm here is that this is harming the witness of Christ in this world. Um, How often have you talked to someone who's perhaps left the faith? And one of the greatest factors was they said, I just saw so much hypocrisy growing up. And often it's the hypocrisy of their very own parents who would sit in church, sing the praises of God, And yet they knew their parents' critical attitudes, their hateful, bitter, contemptuous spirits. And it gave them a distaste for what ought to be a valuable, worthwhile religious experience. People think if your Christianity doesn't even affect the words that you say, of what good, of what use is it? But we are after valuable, worthwhile religious practice, the type that works down to the very heart and core of our being and is expressed in words of grace and love, kindness to the greatest and the least, practicing peace in this world. We want to follow the dictates of Titus 3.2, where Paul tells us to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And so if we want to be a people of a bridled tongue, there's much by way of application, but I just bring one application to your attention. And it's just simply this, is to learn to not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That's what Jesus said, to not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So do not use pejorative terms or utter insults 
when speaking of any political ruler, no matter what position in government, government they hold, whether they are a good or even an evil ruler, we don't want to sink to the level of our culture war discourse and show forth a Christianity that is just as marred and willing to get in the mud fight as everyone else is. We're called to be people of bridled tongues, and that is a religion that is worthwhile, our text shows us. And it doesn't just look like this refraining, but there's also positive action that we can take to show forth a valuable Christian witness in this world. Turn with me to verse 27 as we consider the call to merciful hands. James writes that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now God our Father, he desires a pure religion from his people. And this practice is a religion, and look in the text, it says it's before God the Father. That is, all of our life is lived under our Father's watchful gaze. He is looking at all we do. We are living and practicing before God's face. The Puritans used this phrase to say that they were living quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. And if we were truly to internalize and recognize that we are always living with our Father watching us, it would help us to be much more circumspect and aware and desirous of trying to find out what pleases the Lord and to do it. And now what would this God-pleasing life before the Father, what would it consist in? Well, we know it starts with bridled tongues, but it continues also to these merciful hands and holy hearts. And it's important to note that these three issues, our, our tongues, our hands, our hearts, this isn't the entirety of religion. It's not the entirety of Christian practice. But these are three eminent, um, important, and significant issues that James is bringing to the fore that help orient us to what a well-rounded, three-dimensional Christianity would look like. Yeah, so this is not the entirety, but three important examples. So this first call here to merciful hands James says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, what might we think of when we think of orphans and widows? Why does James use this term? Well, he's echoing the language of the Old Testament. And orphans and widows are two representative groups that represent people who are in distress and affliction. He says to visit them in their affliction. These are representative groups of afflicted ones. And they are ones that are particularly economically insecure. That is, they don't have means of providing for their own needs. And so are particularly vulnerable to exploitation. And the people in this church to which James is writing, these, this is a poor church. Most of them are refugees who fled the persecution in Jerusalem and are now struggling with poverty. They're being exploited by the local landowners. So this is a relevant topic. They are the economically insecure. And societies throughout history have always been tempted to neglect such groups, the orphans and the widows. Why? Because they're not contributing to the economic prosperity of the society. It's even noted nowadays that children are often neglected in political platforms because children don't vote. There's nothing to gain by using these people. They're economically dependent and especially vulnerable to abuse. 
They have trouble defending themselves. These are groups that are vulnerable. And throughout Scripture, our God, we see, shows a special concern for the economically insecure. And the language of James here, I said, is echoing the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament listening, you'll hear four groups mentioned again and again and again. The poor, the stranger, the widow, and the orphan. Or you might think the fatherless, the widow, the poor, and the stranger, which is really the immigrant or the refugee. Those groups that needed particular help. And we are told how God has a special heart for these people. We're told in Psalm 68.5 that God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. And you might remember back in this morning's scripture reading in Leviticus 19, we read of the gleaning laws where God in Israel as his society of people made specific civil provisions for the support of the poor, the widow, the stranger, and the fatherless. And that was that when the fields were reaped, they weren't supposed to pick every berry off the bush, every fruit off the tree, but leave remnants that others could come and be provided for by these, this, these remnants of the harvest. And the text actually says that um, the gleanings belong to them. This is their due. This is what they deserve. God was making provision, even in his society, for these vulnerable groups. And he calls his people to emulate his compassionate heart again and again. One text is Zechariah 7, verses 9 and 10, where we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. We remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter tells Paul, he says, Remember the poor. And Paul says, That's the very thing we were excited to do. And Christianity throughout history has always been a religion that cares for the vulnerable. From the days in the early church when the Christians were the one that went and rescued children in Rome that were left on the streets or left to the wild animals. They would rescue them and raise them. Or in the Middle Ages when the plague was going around that and the Christians were the ones who stayed in the cities to care for the sick at risk of their own lives. Or even now when we think that even most schools and hospitals in needy areas are started and run by Christian organizations. Christianity has always been a religion that cares about the least of these, not about power, not about worldly eminence, but going to the lowliest place like Jesus himself did. We're called to be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful. And so what might showing mercy to these vulnerable groups entail? Well, our text gives us a specific command. It doesn't tell us an economic or social policy. It doesn't even tell us diaconal procedures or to give alms. It says to visit them, simply to visit them. And really, if you think about it, that means no one has an excuse to not obey this. We can all visit. And it's a call to relationship, not just to generosity from a distance. And one commentator, um, he notes, he says that here James strikes a downright blow at ministry by proxy. I like that phrase, ministry by proxy, or by mere gifts of money. For pure and undefiled religion demands personal contact with the world's sorrow. 
to visit the afflicted and to visit them in their affliction. Because you see the danger is that if we remain distant, if we remain distant from the afflictions and sorrows of this world, we are prone to remain proud, to remain scared, and we other those who are vulnerable. It's a dangerous place to be. Uh, one of my friends here at church was remarking to me recently about his experience um, working or just volunteering at a soup kitchen. And what they were supposed to do here was um, they would help prepare food, then they'd help serve the food, and then they were supposed to sit around the tables and eat the food with those that were coming to receive it. And he noted that people were quick to prepare the food, quick to want to serve the food, but when it came down to actually sitting and talking, there was few people to be seen. We naturally fear those who are unlike us, and we see this difficulty of stretching ourselves to pursue the call of this text to relationship, not just ministry by proxy, though giving and generosity are great goods. There's another call to personal relationship. And th this is no immaterial thing. This isn't just um, Pollyanna-ish thinking to say, well, yeah, sure, that sounds good, visit them. They really need other sorts of help. No, relationships are one of the most essential components of human happiness. Every psychological study shows that it's relationships that bring people satisfaction in life. And don't you know that one of the most difficult parts of living on the margins is that lack of relationship? One of the greatest difficulties of a widow is that feeling of loneliness, of being alone and forgotten. One of the greatest struggles for parentless children is that lack of consistent relationship and connection and good role models and examples. And money can't solve these problems. We need to be in relationship. And Christianity is a fundamentally relational religion. Christ came to reconcile us into intimate relationship with the Father and to reconcile us into peaceful, loving relationships with one another. And so Christianity is a visiting religion. It's a relational, caring religion. Um, Christian scholar Douglas Moo says this, that one test of pure religion is the degree to which we extend aid to the helpless in our world, whether they be widows and orphans, immigrants trying to adjust to a new life, impoverished third world dwellers, the handicapped or the homeless. A test of pure religion. So the question for you tonight is, are you willing to open up your life to those that are not like you? And so consider how you might specifically apply this call from James to your own life. How might you begin building relationships with widows or widowers, with parentless children? How can you invest in and support mothers who've been deprived of husbands, children who've been deprived of fathers? You may feel called to partner with a nonprofit organization, do mentoring with Barnabas here in Zealand, or help out with Love, Inc. But especially, we should consider how we can be called to build organic, personal connections. But either way, are we willing to prioritize these sorts of relationships? Are we willing to prioritize this expression of religion? Are we willing? Because authentic Christianity ought not be known just for bridled tongues, but also merciful hands. Merciful hands, but also, thirdly, holy hearts. Let's consider the call to holy hearts. Again, look at verse 27. This is pure religion, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself 
unstained from the world. Now, the worth of our Christianity isn't only shown by what we do, but also by what we avoid doing. And if our Christianity is to show the world its value, it must of necessity be different. It must of necessity be different. Now, when we're talking about the world here and remaining unstained from it, the idea of the world in the New Testament often is used to refer to uh, the sinful patterns and systems in our culture. That is, the world's sinful value systems and cultural ways about going, uh, going about life. Those social norms that are at variance with the will of God. And the particular stains can, can vary slightly from culture to culture. And when I was trying to reflect on um, what are some of the stains that I fear we often find ourselves in the church as we walk in this world, I, I thought of three. The first was that stain of worldly anger and bitterness and contempt. Kind of what we were talking about when we thought of bridled tongues. And we need to watch that this worldly outrage culture doesn't infect us. But secondly, I thought of greed and materialism and covetousness. The way this world so quickly um, falls for the lust of the eyes, as John calls it. The accumulation of more and more stuff. A retail therapy, people would say. Um, that need to have financial success. The spending of the self on pleasures instead of the spending of the self for others and for the kingdom of God. A stain we must watch out for. And thirdly, obviously the stain of lust and sexual immorality. And not only the outward flagrant acts, but the fleeting thoughts, the heart motives, the things we do in secret, the stains that are coming into the church from the world. Stains that defile our conscience, that mar our witness, and steal our joy in the Lord. And James calls us to keep ourselves unstained. Notice he says to keep oneself unstained from the world. So yes, we pray and we rely on God's grace and the Holy Spirit's work, but we also have a duty to keep yourself, James says. And so that means that we don't just pray and then go on our way without thinking no, it means we need to practice watchfulness. We need to take care to avoid tempting situations, to avoid tempting people that might draw us away. We must uh, keep ourselves unstained, guarding our hearts, guarding our eyes, whether at school, in the workplace, at home. We need to watch and be careful about the media we consume, the social media we consume, the news media we consume, that we not be stained by the sins of the world. If you perhaps came across and were able to get one of those new, nice pairs of those white Nikes, you know, with the thick soles, brand new, and you wanted to keep them unstained, you wouldn't cut through the lawn at the back of the church when you're going back to your vehicle. No, you'd be careful to stay on the cement where they wouldn't get stained. And would that we take such care as we walk in this world to, care, to take care to walk the narrow road, that we not defile the robes Christ has given us, and yes, we know that for every sin and defilement, there is forgiveness and freedom in the blood of Christ. But we want to know the joy of that walking in freedom, the walking in the joy of walking by the Spirit and not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. The call, at the heart of this call is really that idea of holiness. This unstainedness is a separateness, holy. To be holy is to be separate and set apart separate from the common sins of the world. 
But it's not separation merely for the sake of separation. It's separation that we might be consecrated to render service to God. Yes, we are called to this sort of holiness, but as we already heard, we are also called to mercy, to separateness, but also to service. And this twofold call, this twofold call to both mercy and holiness is essential if we want to maintain balance in the Christian life, if we want to maintain ballast, as it were. Boys and girls, if you've never heard of ballast, what ballast is, it's, it's a weight that's at the bottom of boats to help the boats not tip over. If a sailboat, the wind might knock it all the way to one side and capsize it, or all the way to the other. But if there's ballast, that weight in the bottom, it'll be able to maintain a steady course. And we need this balance of both mercy and holiness in our churches, in our lives, that we not capsize to one side or the other. And the Christian church has been constantly struggling with this balance of mercy and holiness. And sadly, in our own history in this country, about 100 years ago, there was a great split in the American church. There was a great split between what were called the modernists and the fundamentalists. And this was important. There was significant doctrinal issues at stake, and the church split apart, and the modernist church jettisoned the holiness to which we're called. They jettisoned that purity of doctrine. They syncretized to worldly values and systems. But at the same time, they worked very hard to seek to maintain mercy and care for the poor and love of neighbor and all those good things we saw in James, yet jettisoning holiness. But at the same time, the fundamentalists, they maintained correct doctrine, they maintained the gospel, they held fast the truth, but in many ways they jettisoned mercy and they became separatist. They um, stayed away from the world. Instead of serving the society, they left the society, as it were. And the problem here is that this separation, it was a great separation. And what we can think of this as is like James 1.27 getting split in half. This call to visit the orphan and widow in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, this text was divorced. What was meant to be together, the church split and each side took one half. A great divorce of spouses that are meant to go together. Now, the best of the evangelical movement when it began in the 1950s and 60s worked hard to say, we need to bring these back together. We need to hold the fundamentals of the faith, but we also need to engage our culture with works of mercy and justice. And there was great success for a season, but I fear that we're coming back to a decisive point again. As once again, liberalism we know is rearing its head in many quarters of the church, we see again dangers. And now for us, I don't think that that is our greatest danger. What I worry about is the way that fundamentalism is also once again rearing its head. And I fear that we are in danger of rejecting the first half of James 1.27 to show mercy, not out of the fear of Walter Rothenbush's social gospel of the 1920s, but out of fear for social justice or quote-unquote wokeness. But we rightly know that the gospel and this scriptural truth we can never concede at any cost. We can never concede the truth of the gospel, but we also can't concede the call to relational mercy to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. We can't lose God's heart for the vulnerable. This is God's very heart. 
And do you know what happens when we lose God's heart of compassion for the vulnerable, for the least of these? What happens when we lose that is we become proud, angry, ingrown Presbyterians. And it's happened before. And it can happen again. But what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. The call to mercy and the call to holiness. These are both biblical calls that we are to love and give ourselves for. And you do realize that in the church, God has instituted both elders and deacons, the care of the soul and the care of the body. Because our Father loves us as whole people. He loves our internal needs and he loves our external needs. God loves and desires both mercy and holiness. And so what do we do? If we want to be a church and a people that pursue mercy from a place of holiness, how do we do it? Well, we don't up and just start a new church program so that we can feel good that we know Grace Fellowship is doing that mercy thing and I'm still off the hook. No, this is a call to personal obedience, to be doers of the word. And so what do we do? And I was actually um, happy when I heard Mike's message this morning. He actually echoed a lot of these same things. Is that first, we repent for our selfishness. We repent for our selfishness and our inward-looking focus. Secondly, we get on our knees and we ask that God would work in us his heart of compassion. We ask that he would show us his bowels of mercies, that we would have his heart for the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, the destitute. Third, we then open our eyes. We open our eyes that we might begin to notice the people around us, looking for opportunities to practice authentic religion. And fourth, we prepare to obey. We ready our feet to go, we ready our mouths to speak, and our hearts to love. Because we want this world to see an authentic Christianity, not to reject some fake knockoff. But why do, why do we want the world to see this? Why do we want the world to see a beautiful, valuable, worthwhile Christianity, that of the bridled tongue, of the merciful hand, and of the holy heart? It's not that they might look at us and go, wow, look at those great people. No, it's that their gaze might be drawn to the beauty and mercy of the Savior himself. That's what we want. Because you see, all our compassion is a dim reflection of the compassion of our Savior. All our holiness and purity is but a small reflection of the purity and the beauty and the moral goodness of our great God and Father. And all the mercy we might show is merely a response to the one who has shown us far greater mercy, who has come to the least of these. All our gentleness and kindness is modeled after the gentleness and kindness of our Lord and Savior. Because you see, Jesus, he visited us as orphaned ones. Jesus visited us as orphans that he might bring us into the family of God as God's adopted sons and daughters. Jesus visited us as poor ones, becoming poor for our sake, that through his poverty we might be made rich. And Jesus still comes today to the lowest, to the poorest, to the weakest, to those with nothing to offer, and he lifts them from the dust and he seats them in heavenly places, giving them blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, making them kings and priests unto God the Father. 
And Jesus, he's that greater good Samaritan who shows us mercy, who binds our wounds, who anoints us with oil and pays our fares. And never are we closer to the heart of God than when we go and do likewise. And Jesus' death, it's already paid for all the ways we're going to fail in our attempts to do this. All our shortcomings, past and present, they're already covered by the blood of Jesus. And so we can go and we can attempt great things for God with peace of conscience and freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he's even given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us and to empower a new and endeavoring obedience. And so we go in faith and we go with joy and press on to know the Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, desiring that to Jesus alone, in it all, that to Jesus would be all glory, honor, and praise forever, forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are delighted by the mercy you've shown us, and we do ask for a greater beholding, that we would see you in your mercy, that we would see you in the compassion you've showed us in Jesus, and that our hearts and minds and lives would be transformed by this perfect picture of love that we find in our Savior, the incredible mercy you've shown us in him. And would we be merciful as you are merciful, that we would go and do and love as Jesus has loved us, that we would practice Holy Spirit self-control and how we bridle our tongues and how we refrain from corrupt speech and speak words of life to a dying world, that we would speak words of grace and love and kindness. Lord, would you grant us those merciful hands that would go and minister to the needs of those who are vulnerable and in need, that we would be a relational people, a visiting people, a people willing to spend for the good of others and not just for ourselves. And we ask that in this all, Lord, you will keep us pure, you will keep us unstained, that you will help us to stand strong, wearing that full armor of God, able to stand even in this evil day. Lord, we know that you've called us to this, you've equipped us for this, by your Spirit, you've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And you've brought us to that level ground. You've lifted us from the miry of clay. And in Jesus, we are forgiven and freed and sent to be his ambassadors in this world, to show forth his love as his people, that the world might know we are his disciples by how we love one another. Lord, work these things deeply in our hearts, Help us to be this kind of church that James is calling us to. Supply your spirit for every need, grace for every hurdle. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.